What's up? Uh, welcome back to episode 26 of the Whistling in the Dark podcast. Uh, Happy New Year. This is the first episode of 2019. Um, yeah, I got, uh, I was I was on a bit of a roll with uh, putting up episodes kind of towards the end of 2018 there. And um just the holidays, I went, uh, you know, I live in Atlanta, and um, I went up up north to visit family and stuff, and um, got back, bunch of stuff happening around New Year's, and um, yeah, I just really, I really got out of it, um, as far as, like, thinking about this, um, you know, I, <clears throat> I didn't feel a lot of... Uh, I don't know, just like too much uh, inspiration as far as the, the stuff that was going on in the news. And, you know, I wasn't um, over the last, I actually don't know exactly how long it's been, um, probably almost a month, something around there, uh, maybe a little bit less since my last episode. Um, but yeah, you know, I, uh, it, <clears throat> In order to do an episode um, and sort of talk for like an hour, hour and a half or whatever um, on these different topics, I mean, I do go off the cuff to a large extent, um, but it whether or not it seems like it, there is, I, I do some uh, preparation uh, before, before the show and uh, I mean before I record, uh, but also there's a lot of kind of prep that kind of organically happens throughout the time in between uh, when I actually sit down and record, you know, just reading articles. Sometimes it's not even reading them, but just saving them, saving the links, just keeping, keeping you know, sort of notes going and then um, kind of mentally sort of working up, you know, what I want to talk about and, uh, you know, and then when I actually, before I do the episode, I normally spend a little bit of time kind of organizing, you know, a little bit of an outline for the show. Um, so uh, today, I, you know, I just really wanted to, I really wanted to just break the ice and get a show out there. And I kind of, <laughs> I still sort of emotionally don't feel all that, all that into it, you know, um, <clears throat> the things, uh, the only, the only really link I think I had saved, um, was a, uh, a link about Sears shutting down. Um, and you know, um, I don't know. It's just sort of interesting. It was, it was like top new, uh, top news article on Hacker News for like almost a whole day and a lot of stuff about it, but that, that actually was a little while ago. Um, that was about that was I was actually a week ago. It looks like the date was um, last Sunday, and um, you know, so that I, that's pretty interesting. I mean, it's a very iconic brand, and um, 
you know, them shutting down. Uh, I'm not, uh, I think it's, you know, maybe it's, it's not, I think it's an interesting kind of like free market sort of, uh, you know, story, I guess. And, and, uh, to be honest, I'm not, you know, super well versed or anything in the history of, you know, Sears, but they're obviously a very old, you know, company and, you know, they were, you know, they had, uh, this kind of catalog. <clears throat> I mean, they had a lot, obviously a lot of brick and mortar stuff as well, <clears throat> but they, you know, they made a lot of money through this catalog shopping and, um, you know, like looking back, I mean, you you think that maybe they would have been really well positioned to kind of just um, move their business online, um, but uh, <clears throat> I think if if I know the the history of it, I I believe they actually like doubled down on like brick and mortar stuff, and maybe even went away from the kind of catalog shopping model um or at least that that portion of their business and um you know obviously that was uh uh you know a fatal decision ultimately um i mean they stayed around for a long time but you know they um this uh i believe sears would be like an example of one of these zombie companies um that's essentially you know taking on debt to sort of stay afloat but they're really not you know making um sustainable profits and eventually you know the chickens come home to roost and and i and i believe that's what happened um but you know we we do talk about some kind of like business and technology stuff and and, and you know it's just it's interesting um in uh we you know um it's like you know, it's hard to imagine in 20 years, you know, a world where the dominant com companies aren't, you know, especially in the tech space, you know, aren't just Facebook and Google and Amazon and Microsoft. Um, but, you know, history sort of shows that there's probably a really good chance that they're, you know, there's going to be big, big dominant forces that we don't, you know, might not even exist yet. Um, and it will take advantage of, you know, combination of, of market and technological sort of changes and, and, you know, capitalize on them. Um, you know, because I mean, obviously you have Sears or whatever, but, um, you know, you had, you know, I mean, I think the, like the story that, maybe be a little bit more familiar um, or might be somewhat familiar is, you know, I mean, IBM in the beginning of the kind of computer age, I mean, IBM was dominant. And, you know, that's the whole thing with Apple was they were always sort of positioned themselves as, as opposed to big blue, you know, that was, that was what they called IBM. And, you know, that was jobs was all about that. That was a, a big part of his branding was, you know, branding themselves as the like anti-corporate computer company and the creatives and the individuals. Um, and then, you know, you also had, uh, and so, you know, obviously, I mean, IBM still exists, but, you know, certainly they aren't as big of a player, you know, as what then Apple and, and Microsoft, 
you know, sort of became. And then, you know, you had Apple and Microsoft as dominant, dominant com companies. Um, but they were more, you know, in the, the PC place. Now, obviously, Apple has, like, continued on this trajectory that probably only in the recent, you know, couple of years has started to kind of flatten out maybe. Um, but, you know, Microsoft and Apple, they really rose to prominence in the sort of personal computing revolution. Uh, and then after that, so, you know, you sort of had the original, I guess, computing and you know, forgive me, I, I'm not an, you know, a, an expert historian on, on all of this stuff, but I think this is generally, you know, pretty well accepted as, you know, the basic steps in, in things. Um, and you had, you know, so you had kind of the initial kind of computing stuff with, with IBM and then, and then the sort of move to these personal computers and the spread of like everybody, you know, having a computer in their house, uh, you know, at least in the U.S. I mean, a, a pretty big coverage of, of homes had personal computers. And then, you know, and at that point, you know, I mean, there, you know, there was a time when there was no Google, there was no Facebook, there was no Amazon. And then, you know, sort of the rise of, of the Internet. And, you know, tons of companies started and failed and everything like that. But, you know, uh, you know, Google and um, and, you know, obviously with was, you know, with the search and stuff, um, you know, revolutionized um, just every person's interaction with the Internet and and obviously Facebook with the, you know, social media um, and that that sort of taking, you know, taking hold of that that piece of of the industry. And then Amazon, you know, they 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 kind of are this big retail, you know, internet retail, and um, and then infrastructure, you know, the cloud cloud infrastructure, uh, you know, obviously is very Amazon is very important. Um, but then, you know, and and you've seen, you know, Apple obviously continue to sort of innovate and progress, you know, kind of really really grabbing the mobile, uh, the mobile thing, and. Um, and I, you know, I, it's been a, I used to be really fascinated and read tons and tons of stuff about the whole Android Apple, um, stuff for over those years. And, um, and that was mainly when I was, I was a Android user sort of in the beginning, I was on Verizon and, and, uh, you couldn't get the iPhone for a while. Uh, Apple, you know, didn't, didn't release one or they didn't have an agreement or whatever. Um, so if you wanted like, a good phone, you know, um, this sort of post BlackBerry, you base and you were on Verizon, you basically, you know, you had to use Android. So, you know, I had a few Android phones. Um, and I was just really interested in, and, uh, and it is, it, it, I, I, back then, it, I remember a lot of the talk was how there were so many Android phones. I mean, they had a much, much larger market share. Um, but, they weren't really making a ton of or very much money at all off of it. And, um, you know, Apple with a much smaller market share was making tons of money because they, you know, they had, they owned their own app store, which obviously Google had an app store as well. And then, you know, they were making all the profits off the hardware as well. Whereas, you know, Google, Google wasn't at the time. Now, Fast forward today, Google definitely makes more money off hardware. I mean, they they do, you know. I think um, Google's like Pixel phones and stuff uh, are, um, 
you know, one one of the kind of popular Android phones, and and then you know, uh, Samsung is it really took advantage, I guess, of the Android being open source, and you know, they the uh, Galaxy phones are are super popular, so you know, Samsung makes a bunch of money off that. Um, but yeah, so so these companies have uh, evolved, you know, to some extent, and then you, uh, and then also, you know, Google has a big cloud infrastructure. Microsoft does, and Amazon, and I, I believe those are the big three biggest players. Uh, with Amazon, I'm pretty sure being pretty significantly larger. And as a a developer, at least you know, in the frameworks and languages and stuff that I use and the people I interact with. Um, Amazon is like by far the top choice. Uh, I mean, people don't really think a whole lot about Azure, uh, but there is a whole set of like developers that sort of do web development, but still in the kind of Microsoft realm. And I think it's like the .NET framework or something. Um, But anyway, so, you know, we've seen a, you know, it's just pretty interesting uh, progression and, you know, you, you see a company like Sears that just didn't bet right or, you know, I mean, also, like, maybe they just mismanaged stuff on top of it. Like, it, it doesn't necessarily, you know, um, I think about it with, like, uh, restaurants. Like, I have friends that, that own restaurants and stuff. And um, even, you know, even if you run, like, a you know, sort of start a restaurant and it's very popular, um, you know, sort of outwardly, lots of customers, lots of people coming in. I mean, it can still fail uh, just because the margins are, you know, kind of thin. Um, so e- even if you are sort of making a lot of sales and have a lot of people want your stuff, if you, you know, you're not really managing, you know, your costs correctly, I mean, you can still wind up having to shut down. And so, you know, certainly that could have happened with Sears, but it seems to be, you know, there's some pretty clear, like, uh, errors they made, I guess, in sort of far forecasting the way markets were going to go or the way technology was going to go or the way, you know, shopping sort of behavior, retail behavior of, of people was going to go. And, and they have, you know, gone by the wayside. And so they're gone. And, um, you know, companies like IBM are still around, um, but certainly not, um, you know, to the extent of, you know, the current big players. Um, But yeah, so, you know, I, it's, I think it's kind of fun to think about, um, you know, the future. And, uh, you know, it, you can be kind of optimistic and think like, hey, you know, they're like, yeah, it feels like, oh, man, these, you know, these big companies are so dominating everything and then they own all the data. And, you know, but I, I would I still sort of hold out hope or have the expectation that, you know, at some point new players are going to come in and and some of these companies are going to, you know, sort of make the wrong play and not position themselves correctly and, you know, wind up, you know, sort of going the way of, of either IBM or Sears and, um, you know, completely gone. Uh, and, you know, I don't really know which one it would be uh, or, you know, if, I, if you had to sort of pick the most vulnerable. I mean, you would you would think like Facebook because it it seems sort of less built around a fundamental technology like it. It would seem that, like you know, uh, 
uh, kind of like a really simplistic way that it's just like, I mean, it's just an app, you know, it's just a social media app and sure those are going to come and go, right? Like, I mean, before Facebook, <clears throat> you know, you saw Friendster come and go and then uh, MySpace and, you know, and then Facebook and then, uh, you know, obviously there's like, uh, I mean, Twitter out there and some other less, you know, Snapchat, but Snapchat was was kind of like the darling of the whole Silicon Valley scene, like thinking like, oh, they are really shaking things up. But I, I don't think things are looking, the future is looking very bright for Snapchat. Like it turned out that adding some of this functionality, like the stories that kind of go away or whatever, this sort of live stuff, um, they were able to sort of just, you know, put that into the current sort of Instagram, Facebook apps. And I think it's really uh, hurt hurt Snapchat. I think that they've actually lost users um, for the first time over in like a quarter or whatever. And, you know, that is definitely not, you know, is definitely not good. I mean, I think Facebook's sort of user growth eventually started to plateau or flatten out. But I mean, at some point, you know, you're starting to just run into like, there's just not a lot of people left, you know, like if, if there's 7 billion people in the world, and you have like 5 billion people on your platform, I, I don't know what their numbers are. But you know, it, it probably becomes tougher and tougher to sort of like, get that. I mean, how are you gonna, you know, have a 50% growth, there's there isn't enough people in the world, you know, to even you could sign up everybody in the world. And you know, year over year, it wouldn't even be 50% growth. And then once you did that, you I mean, now there's you know it'd be zero growth but you'd have everybody so i i believe that facebook is probably their sort of evolution now has become more about you know profits and um just you know kind of that that side of things monetizing <clears throat> you know their user base and from what i understand i mean they've done a pretty you know a pretty good job and um but you know who knows like who knows how that will, you know, how that will continue. And, um, you know, as far as like possible sources of it, I mean, I, you know, I, I've talked before about the, um, you know, decentralized applications and, um, you know, that, you know, who knows if that picks up steam, um, or not, but you know, if it does, I mean, that it seems very un unlikely to me that like one of the incumbents would really capitalize on uh, building decent, a decentralized application that was super popular. You know, it's just their, um, their like entire infrastructure is not built uh, to support that. You know, the decentralized apps is, is more of almost like a peer to peer kind of thing. And, and um, I mean, who knows, maybe they, they could, you know, build something that really caught on and and they could sort of continue to evolve that way. But, you know, it's possible they don't. And then um, uh, things like virtual reality and uh, uh, augmented reality, um, you know, there is a ton of of research money and and going into that from these big companies um you know i know uh, obviously facebook has you know bought oculus a while ago and so you know oculus is probably the biggest name in virtual reality so you know by proxy then facebook is probably the biggest name in virtual reality and i guess after that would 
uh, probably be Google just through their like Android platform. Um, I know they do a lot, but you know, that hasn't really caught on in a popular sense yet. Um, but you know, that doesn't, you, you know, that doesn't mean it won't. I mean, the, you know, like the internet itself was around for a long time, you know, uh, before it became just, you know, ubiquitous and, and everybody used it and, you know, everybody, you know, either had, you know, I mean, I think like the, the mobile kind of thing is like really, really did it, you know, like once, you know, you could just get access to any, you know, get internet on your phone in a, like a real legitimate way, um, that really changed, um, I, you know, it just made it a part of like, not, not just like, oh, everybody had a computer at home that had internet access. It was like now, I mean, everybody's like almost continuously interacting with, with the internet, you know? And so, um, I mean, I, back in the, like, I, I, I don't know, I probably first went online in like the, like early nineties or something. And, you know, through, uh, I mean, there was AOL and I forget, um, another one I had, um, but you know, uh, that, I mean, that, that's a really interesting one, right? AOL. I mean, AOL was like the gateway to the internet that a lot of people back then sort of initially went through and they had this whole kind of weird, like, kind of like sort of like a social network i guess i mean you made you know you had your like username and you added people but it was more around instant messaging but then there were all these chat rooms and everything like that and you know so you you kind of met people just like that were your like online friends or whatever um but then outside of that you know <clears throat> it was you know it's like kind of random small sites and i the site that I always remember, I used to go on this site called Boz's Polyglot. I uh, don't know if it's still in existence, but it was a website that um, you went on and basically like you you kind of tried to talk to people in like different languages. Like it was all built around that. So, you know, I knew some German back then. And um, I mean, I guess I still know a little bit, uh, but, you know, it would be like, I would go and kind of talk in English, but then meet people that, you know, spoke German and, you know, we talk about, I don't know, we just, whatever you do in like chat rooms and stuff. Um, but, you know, it was a really, I mean, by today's standards, I mean, it was a ridiculously clunky, um, you know, web page and uh, it was, you know, there wasn't, you know, you weren't, it was all text, you weren't sharing like images and, you know, you weren't exchanging things and new like news links and you know stuff like that and um you know it was very you know um very rudimentary uh by today's standards for sure so you know <clears throat> the idea of virtual reality um or you know these decentralized apps like possibly built on you know on blockchains and stuff like that um yeah like i mean bitcoin i think just had its 10th anniversary uh pretty recently um so it's been around for 10 years but you know for the lion's share of that i mean nobody was building anything on top of it it was just sort of simply like being traded and tried to be it was almost more about not building you know applications on top of 
Bitcoin as much as just like doing transactions with Bitcoin. You know, it was it was a, a, a sort of more limited scope. This just idea of having a currency that's purely digital and, you know, very secure and it's, you know, no central authority can like if, uh, you know, inflate the the supply of Bitcoin, you know, de and devalue it. So that, you know, that was sort of the original problems. But then, you know, uh, cryptocurrencies like Ethereum then came up and um, sort of changed or, or, or really sort of like added on to that idea, this, the ability to sort of build you know, possibly build applications where then, you know, interactions or data um, could be sort of stored in this public ledger. Um, and then, you know, we had, we've talked in past episodes about now, now there's people working on like decentralized storage, which would be a big piece that's kind of required. Um, but, you know, the promise is that you have these kind of these, these, diffuse sort of decentralized networks that are spread across you know all different machines all different computers uh, all over the place um and there isn't you know there now now not just is there no central authority that can that can you know mess with a currency there's sort of like no central authority um you know theoretically that can like you know, mess with this application that it, it, it's kind of like once it starts going, it just sort of has its own inertia. And it's really just like about a, a popular thing, you know, like if people use it and like it, then it's going to live and there isn't like a company that can cut it off, you know. Um, so and e even so the, one, one of the places where this is a little bit confusing um, or maybe not purely like decentralized is around the actual code itself. And this, this process is, I'm still a little bit unsure of it, but basically like there right, right now there has to be like a central code repository. Um, so it would, it would basically, I don't know, I'm trying, just trying to imagine, um, so like when you get Facebook on your phone, right? Like that application um, is then downloaded on all these different people's phones. Now, in order for Facebook to work, it has to connect to central servers that Facebook owns, right? Um, but with a decentralized app, the idea would be like, well, you you would download this app and then it there wouldn't be just like one central you know company that owned the servers that that your application would then be in interacting with like all these other uh people that have the application or possibly i i would assume that there would be sort of these kind of like complementary other apps that are that get deployed that are more of the back end type of part of the Facebook app or something and that people then can like download and run them and they they sort of like do more of the heavy lifting and storage and stuff but in this decentralized encrypted way that you know that it, you know if I owned one of those if I owned a computer and I was running you know a server that supported this decentralized application that like if I decided to shut off my server 
it wouldn't really like do anything and 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 sure i can run like more and more servers and and that's like when people talk about um i think they talk about like the 51 percent attacks if you ever if you've ever heard that um I think it's just the idea that like if you actually did run or, you know, control more than 50 percent of the, you know, the sort of in, in crypto it be the miners, um, then you sort of effectively would actually have like control or, you know, over the network or whatever. But, you know, that's one of the things about, you know, Bitcoin that 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 would be very, very hard. I mean, it is a massive computer network at this point. Um and I'm I'm not really sure like if they're what is the largest percentage sort of controlled by a single organization, but a- anyway, you know that's that's the way um, that that would go. But so so sort of stepping back. So now like so with Facebook, right? Like even even with Facebook, the front end apps are you know I mean decentralized in the sense that we all download them on our phones and we all we all run them on our phones and it's same thing for like the web basically except you like on your phone you download sort of once and you run that app up until you know maybe Facebook releases an updated version and you get that whereas in your browser you're basically getting and downloading a new version every single time um, but it's sort of the same idea but the so the the idea of the sort of centralized code repository um, I think you can continue to sort of keep the analogy going because Facebook certainly has a centralized code repository, right? Like their developers are working on the next version of the app. And then when it's finished, they put it in the app store and then you're alerted that there's a new version, right? But let's say, uh, you know, Facebook made some update in the new version that you didn't like uh maybe they they said oh we're getting rid of the like button or something so if you download if you install the update you no longer have the like button anymore and so you choose to keep the old version now in um so now in the world with facebook i mean they can say well we're going to stop supporting the old version so you know at some point you know, you're you're just totally cease to function, and you really don't have any say in this, aside from the usual sort of market consumer forces, right? Like if if they had like a mass revolt amongst users, and nobody installed the update, then maybe they would, you know, back out of it. But ultimately, like they have complete control; they can just render, you know, your old version obsolete and unsupported, and you wouldn't even be able to use it. So. Um, there are some similarities then with the decentralized uh, version of this, like with where the servers are decentralized and where now now it's like they can. So there's still this centralized repository. So they still could, you know, like there's going to be like an update that gets released at some point, a new version. And if you don't like it, you know, you wouldn't maybe you don't install the update um but the same thing sort of is true for the people that are running the servers like these decentralized server part of this and that i believe is is basically like what goes on when you see these forks uh in in like bitcoin so bitcoin forks and there becomes bitcoin cash and then you know bitcoin sort of the regular bitcoin 
exists. So some update occurs or somebody could just fork that central repository and make changes and then release that. And so then it just becomes this like really direct market uh, influence by the users. It's not just, oh, well, Facebook has to decide if they're making their user base upset, uh, but ultimately they have like the complete decision. If 25% of people in the decentralized world sort of took the fork forked version and installed that, then it may just start to function alongside of it because now, you know, now you have sort of like both things existing at the same time. Um, so it's, there's still like right now, this idea of, uh, well, there's still like the situation right now is still that there is like a centralized, you know, repository for Bitcoin or Ethereum or whatever. Um, and as a user, uh, or a miner or whatever, you have the choice to like install or not. And then I guess if there's, you know, if there's enough support for installing a fork or not installing some update, you know, then it will just sort of languish and, and die, um, you know, or possibly have now two simultaneously running, um, you know, blockchains, but that have now divided the computing power between them. Um, so there, it, it's not like, you know, as, as just like a user of a decentralized app, like, you, you know, you're still, there is, I, at least the way I understand it now, there is still some aspect of it that is centralized, um, you know, that, that there could be these changes that, you know, you don't like, and, and then they're sort of forced upon you because, you know, what you do like isn't really supported by a lot of people, and your sort of choice is just like, take it or just not have an, that application anymore, you know, move on to something completely different. Um, so, you know, I, I haven't thought a, a ton about like a solution to that, but it does seem like that it's a pretty clear kind of, you know, pinch point in this whole decentralized, um, decentralized, uh, you know, application uh, infrastructure that we have right now. And I wonder if somebody or some people are going to sort of figure out a possible solution, even for that, um, even to where like somehow like the code itself is developed um, in a decentralized way. And again, like, you know, uh, GitHub is probably the, mo is the most like popular code repository that people generally put stuff like this on. It's a website, github.com. Um, now, I mean, GitHub is built around the idea that like anybody with a GitHub account can try to contribute to an open source community. Um, and like, they can go to the code and say, Hey, there's this issue. Uh, and they take a copy of the code and they, maybe it's just a bug or something. And they, you know, you, you could just fix the bug. And then what you would do is submit what they call a pull request. And basically you're saying, I am requesting that you bring you my fix that I made into the main code base incorporated in the main code base. Um, but the actual incorporate like that choice of merging in your pull request that, uh, as far as I know, is a pretty centralized process. 
um, you know, that that becomes sort of this centralized choice or, you know, they, they do have different like ways of governance of these things. And I, so people are definitely trying to, um, you know, mediate this sort of centralized dominance by by having, um, you know, like some kind of human sort of structure to it that it's not just like a person but you know there's there's people that can kind of vote on it and and it i I think in crypto like i I believe that like this idea of quote-unquote voting actually is sort of done by the miners um but that's very specific like i'm i'm sort of thinking a little bit more general than just cryptocurrencies and blockchain but just decentralized stuff in general right like you could build a decentralized app that does not work on blockchain at all and it's a completely different thing but this idea of like well how do you deal with the coding how do you deal with the open source and dealing with the pull rest pull requests coming in and changes and who decides what gets brought in and what does not um you know it but these right now i think there's just this idea of this boards of governance or whatever um and possibly you know the miners are in in crypto but uh, I do think that that is probably something that will that we will see some innovation on, um, and you know it could be really cool. I mean that, I mean it's. It, I know I'm like really deep in the weeds right now. Uh, I was not planning on deep diving this heavy uh, into decentralized applications, um, but it, it's it's a topic that I've been quite interested in. Um, you know, for the last, well, for a long time, but um, definitely a lot over the last, like, you know, few months or whatever, um, it's been growing. Uh, but, you know, this, <clears throat> you know, I because I think that the internet itself, you know, that, that was the, um, like, a big part of it was, was uh, you know, this idea that it's like, Oh, you know, there's all these like you can really like directly interact with other people in in like media sort of way. You know, I mean, even if it's, you know, even all the way up today, like even if it's Twitter, you know, it's like when you're watching TV, like, you know, you can't respond to the people talking on TV. It's not like an interactive sort of thing. And and it's sort of just this centralized broadcast that's just one way broadcasting out to us um but then the internet you know it's like like billions of people just like interacting directly um now obviously we we've begun to like consolidate on these platforms and stuff and and you know that that's sort of the way it evolved but i i think that you know and i've said this before i mean i really think that with the like rise of corporate censorship and especially because it feel it seems to a lot of people like the corporate censorship has a particular political agenda. Um, you know, there is like a growing motivation to kind of push back towards you know the the sort of original kind of promise of the internet of of like removing this middleman. Um, and it seems like you know some some combination of these decentralized technologies could could do that and to and i think that <clears throat> maybe some innovation in the actual code portion of it may really help to unlock you know 
unlock this sort of idea and this potential um, because then it becomes very and and I know democratic isn't the greatest uh, term for anarchists or libertarians to hear, um, but and you know I mean in the way of like it's democratic but not in the not in the way of like um, oh well if fifty one percent of the people say this then everybody has to uh, agree on it. It's more democratic in the way I think of like the market, a market being democratic and just the sense of, you know, what, you know, people vote with their dollars type of thing. And, and I think that, um, you know, some innovation around the sort of coding and the contributions and the decisions, uh, that get made being a little bit more just market based, um, in that way, uh, like unlocking the sort of market potential in a more sort of more to the core of it uh, could really um, unlock this, uh, unlock this, uh, you know, this sort of technology. And then, um, you know, with uh, virtual reality, <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, it's the some of the same stuff applies in the sense of it being very early and just the length of time that, you know, the internet sort of took to, to grow and grow and like catch on. There's a very, um, I mean, it's kind of, you know, in, in, um, people that are like into like startups and, and that kind of stuff, you like, there's a lot of talk sometimes about like the hockey stick, the hockey stick sort of like growth. And the idea is it's sort of like a hockey stick laying on its side and it's just sort of, you know, maybe it's lifted up a little bit like the long shaft of the stick and it's sort of slowly, slowly going up. But, you know, and then at the at the blade, there's this big inflection point and all of a sudden the slope gets much, much greater. And there's like sort of this explosion in growth, you know, and I think that, you know, the Internet kind of through you know, the nineties, I think was, was sort of going on that hockey stick shaft and, and maybe the internet had like, I mean, it doesn't have to follow. It's not like there just has to be one inflection point. Um, but you know, it, 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 you know, it, it's, uh, certainly hit some explosion at some point. And I think, you know, maybe like the spread of personal computers was, you know, maybe even seemed like that kind of inflection point. And then, like the spread of mobile devices, the internet connected mobile mobile devices, like really, really ramped it up um, to kind of get us where we are today. And so, you know, I mean, not you know, you not many people have virtual reality uh, hardware, and there's all different levels of it. I mean, you can just plug, you can just slap your phone into like a five dollar headset and like you know, play some virtual reality games, whether you get an Android or an iPhone or watch, you know, virtual reality, like immersive movies or whatever, or porn or, you know, whatever. I mean, I, you can pretty much pull that off with just your phone. Um, but then there's also things like the Oculus Rift and the HTC Vive, and there's a number of others now that are these like full immersive, you know, virtual reality worlds that you can even kind of move around inside because they track you know you can put sensors in your room and and that kind of stuff now that that market penetration of that is like very small and i actually don't know if it's in, increasing or not at the moment but you know it's um i i mean i would guess the adoption is increasing and and you know the the hardware development is happening in a large part in in sort of 
you know, inside of Facebook, inside of Google. And um, they are like Facebook uh, is going to release a new Oculus that's a completely standalone headset, um, but that actually tracks your movement. Like you don't need to have like a thousand dollar PC to run it. And then you're not physically you know tethered to it um and that's going to be like 400 bucks and so now you know now you're getting down to almost the price of like an you know an xbox or something um you know so i think that that you know it hasn't just hit that inflection point and there hasn't really been that you know sometimes people talk about like the killer app the app that like really you know kind of takes a device um, or, or some technology and, and makes it mainstream. You know, I, I, you know no, nothing like that has, has happened yet. But I do believe that, you know, there – well, I mean, it's not a belief. It's just true that there's tons of money being poured into uh, virtual reality research and development, um, and, and they have certainly pushed the, bar, uh, pushed the ball forward quite a lot as far as – making the hardware cheaper, uh, making it better, making it like more comfortable, you know, and like one of the big things, I owned a an HTC Vive for a while and it's expensive. I mean, it was like $800 and then I had like a $1,500 computer to, to run it. And, um, you know, and it's, it's funny. I mean, you can just imagine what people, you know, 20 years from now would think of this, of me standing in my room with these like, having to set up these like really delicate sensors. And then I have this like huge bulky headset on uh, and I can't see anything like outside of it. I'm holding these controllers in my hand that are, you know, basically just like, you know, some kind of like regular game controller, but this somehow they're tracked by these, these little like tower sensor things. And then, you know, the biggest thing is I have these huge wires coming out of the headset and plugged into the computer. And so it's like, you know, you're, you're like kind of moving around in this shooter game and then you kind of jump back because, you know, some monsters coming at you and you just like rip the cable out of your computer and everything goes black i mean that would happen you know and it's obviously like the earliest earliest version you know uh that was like even at all available to consumers um so i uh i i don't know where this is gonna go um obviously i mean i'm i'm not one of these like futurist like prediction people uh never thought that I was too great at doing that. Um, but you know, I, I think that it's, it's just, you know, it's certainly not going to get worse, you know, it's not going to be, and one of the, one of the knocks, a lot of people, it's like, oh, VR is going to go away. And they'd say, oh, it's just like 3d TVs and it's going to, you know, go away. But I think that, um, they're just, you know, like, I think that the difference to me is just in the experience. Like while I, so, you know, I jumped on one of the earliest, you know, consumer available virtual reality things that you could get. And it was, you know, as I just described, you know, it was kind of, kind of absurd if you think about it compared to like the comfort of just sitting on my couch and playing Xbox, you know? Um, But like the undeniable thing is that when you put it on, I mean, it's, it, to me, I mean, it was almost the first time I, I tried an Oculus Rift actually first. I mean, it was almost like life changing. Uh, it, it was just, I, you know, I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was so cool uh, and so immersive. I mean, you know, you, you, 
nothing ever it, it, like nothing about 3D ever elicited any sort of extra emotional experience for me, you know? But I put on this headset and like uh the, one of the first things I was standing on a basketball court and like LeBron James dribbles up to me and like crosses over and drives by me and goes and like dunks. You know, and it's like you you just like for for a few seconds there, I mean, I had the experience of just standing there watching LeBron James coming at me driving with a basketball. And then it switched to some other thing. And I'm standing there in this hallway, this big hallway, and a Tyrannosaurus Rex comes walking down. And it's, you know, he's fucking massive. I mean, it's just like feels like, you know, there is a there is to some percent like I'm my brain is like believing that I'm looking at a Tyrannosaurus Rex and and when I everywhere I look around and everything I hear is like telling my senses that that's what I'm seeing um and you know I mean there's just not even close like nothing about 3D ever did that um you know it's just like I mean, I almost feel like 3D was just like this very, very sort of early first stage at trying to just sort of make this more realistic experience of like, wow, this thing's in the room with me. But like you can see the TV like, you you know, it's not it's just not the same. Um, so, you know, I I am a believer in some that that in the future, virtual reality or augmented reality are going to be very, very prevalent. Uh, what it's going to look like, I have no idea. I mean, I think that like there's a possibility that it's going to look like chips in our head that we're not wearing anything that we just always are able to like bring up heads up displays and you know layover information and that would be like augmented reality or just fully like intercept our vision and replace it with like you know a virtual world um I mean you know, I don't know how long it would take to sort of like accomplish that, but you know, I I think that you know maybe, you know maybe people would be really really opposed to to doing that. Um, and you know, I like if you're a, a good conspiracy theorist, like that idea sounds probably really spooky because you know sort of we've been on the lookout for these RFID. Uh, chips that are supposed to get installed with us like the Illuminati is going to try to like install it in us and it's supposed to be like that's the mark of the beast you know like that's what that's in these RFID chips um so you know this certainly sounds like something along along those lines like uh but you know what you know obviously we'll see and you know what how, how it goes but you know there's there I'm just saying that because there's just a lot of multiple you know, there's many sort of parallel and interacting technologies that are all being developed at the same time, you know, whether it's like decentralized stuff or virtual reality. Another big thing is like Internet of Things. I've been talking to a friend of mine a lot about that, about like possibilities with that, you know, um, like they uh, what the um, one of the one of the things I've heard recently about that could be driving the sort of growth of a more decentralized network is um like self-driving cars or just you know e i mean even if they're not fully self-driving but just like you know even assisting cars or you know what anyway cars that are are able to process like lots and lots of information and there's well uh, the one article i was reading um i think it was a guy from andreessen horowitz it was like it might have been mark andreessen um 
you know, he was his point was just that these cars, they like, you know, when you have a self-driving car, it can like <clears throat> it cannot sit like when it's looking at the road and processing like what it should do, if it should stop or go or you know, danger or whatever, it has to do that in the car. Like it it's too slow. It cannot like beam you know, send a request to an Amazon server and say, hey, this is what I just saw in this millisecond. Tell me, you know, now use the embedded, you know, machine learning, you know, artificial intelligence models there and tell me how I should respond to that. That that round trip is too slow, you know, so it that actually has to happen in the car itself. So it, like a self-driving car is... It just has to be very decentralized in that sense. Now, obviously, it can be built by a very central authority, and I, you know, I don't mean that. But you know, who knows? Like, who knows what happens? You know, like if if that is like what you know, if that's really driving. Um, not, I don't mean to use the same same word, but if uh, you know, if that that is kind of like a big market force in starting to develop computer technologies around the idea of processing happening way out on these edge nodes and not in the central, you know, mainframe or cloud, you know, these big giant, you know, server farms um, that, you know, that's really different. And then you, you know, all kinds of other stuff. And, and I think a lot of internet of things stuff right now still does community. I mean, that's like very like life or death and it needs to be instant, you know, it needs to be instant. So it can like a you know, like if, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I guess like even, um, well, actually, I don't know how these cameras work. You know, if you have like a security camera on your, uh, at, at your house, it's like a smart camera or whatever that can alert you to say, Hey, I see like a person in here. I'm actually not sure. Does that happen on the camera itself, or is it sending the pictures to the the central server? My guess is it's sending the pictures to the central server. But again, that's not like you know if if it takes an extra three hundred milliseconds to process whether or not a person is like broken in your house, it's fine, right? Because it, you know you're not gonna like get robbed worse or less worse you know you're talking about like you know below one second processing even if it took a second even if it took 10 seconds i mean uh you know i mean at some point it's like you would want it to be faster but it's not as big a deal as the uh you know the car and the necessity it's very life or death it cannot afford to send you know information back and forth over the wires what they call it like you know to these centralized server farms to be processed and it's not to mean these server farms won't have any use um there could be like more like slower training like the car is sort of slowly updating uh, uploading its its data there and like models new models are sort of learning and getting trained and then eventually updates from that are coming back to the car and so you know the car can have the benefit of learning from all of the other cars you know and so that would be something that you know the current sort of cloud aws you know amazon uh infrastructure style stuff would still work um but uh you know, nonetheless, it's it's pretty significant. You know, the the idea that that there's some like really serious computing power and the most important processing uh, like occurs on the fly in the vehicle itself. Um, and um, 
I don't know. That's pretty cool. But then, you know, that so I would say, I guess, like the third kind of like, you know, what's going to happen in the future. I do think that this Internet of Things stuff, um, you know, right now, uh, I, I do think like Amazon with Alexa, because it's a connection to the, um, you know, voice assistant and that voice control is kind of leading the way um, and with Google behind and then Apple like very far behind. Um but you know that it's it's again it's like there may I I could imagine like a very a kind of a big sort of more like of a paradigm shift of like you know now people have like various sensors like all over you know their house even on their you know their body I and mean, people are starting to do it with watches you know monitoring their heartbeat or whatever and you know you can have stuff in your house like monitoring the air quality you can have stuff monitoring people coming in and out adjusting your lights like you know whatever like all these you know all these different things and then you you know you can have it more and more like it, it like again like you know it's like just really in the infancy with internet of things type stuff and that you know just the idea of the internet of things is like lots of very very small very low power devices but all over the place um you know and so yes like companies are tapping into these existing uh you know alexa or or like google assistant or siri or whatever to like be a centralized control um but I think it's like quite possible. Like people like, well, again, at least people like us are probably listening to this. Like they don't like the idea of like ta having this always on, you know, thing listening that like Amazon owns, you know. So maybe like the decentralized version of that will become really big because people will trust it a lot more because now they know that, you know, there is no single authority that is has all of the code would be open source, you know, and, and so you would know it would be very well vetted and you would know that like people don't have access to your sort of personal information and it's, it's sort of encrypted and fragmented all over uh, like the, this network. So there isn't any like non-encrypted pieces that are like useful stored on like any particular um, server. Uh, and so, you know, I think that, that that could be very attractive. Now, at the end of the day, you know, the normal consumer that's really going to take this to mass, you know, mass adoption, I think you've got to really give real uh, product kind of benefits that, um, you know, over Alexa. Like what, like, you know, and I don't know what that would be, but um, there's definitely like different um, – I don't know what the word with this for this would be, but like a different sort of performance profile. Um, if if the networks were very decentralized, the, and if they were like able to be aware of sort of geographically how far other nodes were from them, then like if you wanted, then it, it's quite possible that actually com com like communicating to a decentralized network could be much faster is instead of having to go to like you know amazon is you know some huge things in like virginia or whatever so like when you know when i say alexa turn on my lights like if that has to like send a message you know that gets all the way to the servers in you know, um, Virginia and then gets processed and then the response comes back and then the lights turn on versus they turn on right from my device here and it's like instant, you know, people might like that 
more. There's like less delay. Um, and then even if even if like my device right here still needs to reach out for some reason to process, as long as that that like step, but but what if like you know down the street is one of the nodes? Then it's just gotta like you know you're talking like moving at the speed of light. Like it's like it's almost instantaneous. You know the lag, and there's a certain level of like like of speed that below which like we don't really even perceive of it as anything but just instant, you know? Um, you know, so it, it may very well be that decentralized networks allow for a lot more operations in these sort of like connected kind of internet of things, uh, automation stuff or sensor stuff, uh, with that actually are below that threshold and appear to us as basically being instant instantaneous um so you know anyway it's possible and um this is like some just giant mega tangent uh stream of consciousness all <laughs> from the the idea uh or <laughs> from the article that uh sears is going out of business um but you know this is this is just sort of continuing on kind of just talking about what might happen in the future and you know the possibilities that if you know if there can become real you know tangible consumer benefits to being on these decentralized uh networks and then doubly give you better privacy um and and less uh, worry about censorship and and people sort of like snooping on your data and everything like that um you know it could it could really happen and and in that case you know it could be some you know blend of all kinds of stuff you know virtual reality augmented reality internet of things you know i mean if you think about it now right like all the there's so many technologies that blend together right now um that are very popular you know, and you don't, you you know, you can talk about mobile and you can talk about cloud architecture and you can talk about machine learning and you can talk about, you know, home automation or whatever. But the reality is like your home automation is a combination of like all of those technologies together at once. So they're, you know, I think that makes it so hard to predict what's going to happen because the fate of virtual reality or just what it's going to look like is going to be the result of like the coming together of a lot of technologies being developed simultaneously. Um, and we haven't even, uh, you know, I haven't even mentioned, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning and all that stuff, except just in the idea of the self-driving cars, I guess. And, but, you know, recognizing that a person is in your house, you know, versus, I don't know, just some like shadows because the sun is, moving a tree or something outside your window, you know, that the program or the application that does the recognizing that processes the image data would certainly be the result of like machine learning and, and, uh, you know, sort of training in that way, um, right now. So, you know, I think that, you know, artificial intelligence and, and, um, machine learning and these sort of, uh, deep learning networks and everything are, I, I believe that now is the time for them. Like, I think the current age we are in right now, the the sort of revolution is one that's like um, much more sort of behind the scenes. And it's all around like data science. Um, and, and to me, what it means is like it is 
Uh, it was certainly, you know, allows for new things like self-driving cars. Um, but it's also, to me, it, the, the, the reason that it sort of pen can penetrate everywhere is that, you know, to, to some extent, I think of like machine learning and stuff. It's just like very fancy, just statistics. Um, it, it's just sort of really complex statistics. But, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's still basically just statistics. Uh, and, you know, people, you know, use, right, like you could imagine like your business, like you're analyzing, you know, you're, you're like a small business owner, you're in a store and, you know, maybe you, you sort of have your inventory and sales on a spreadsheet and, you know, maybe you run some macros then you kind of see, you try to like figure out some trends and say, oh, well, you know, oh, it looks like people have been buying this like organic soap less uh, in recent years, you know, the, in, in the last like six months there's been a decline and you know i'm gonna like you know use that to kind of calculate maybe i'm gonna buy less uh for the next you know in my next order and you know and that's like, like these very like sort of manual statistics and stuff but you know if you're just not tracking any of that stuff you know you're you're going to be less efficient you're you're more likely to buy too much soap you know but this is like the first attempt at being more efficient. And so to me, like one of the big aspects of machine learning is efficiency, is that like every, you know, every industry, like every business, I think could benefit from this and will, like, I think it'll become very like ubiquitous that, um, you know, just kind of like there's the, you know, the PC revolution and the mobile revolution. I think that we're going through the like artificial intelligence, like machine learning revolution, but it's just a little bit more of like a business revolution. And it, it's like kind of a little bit more uh, like kind of like transparent or invisible to the users. You know, they're just sort of like going to businesses that are operating sort of more efficiently and, and sort of better at predicting the needs of their their users or their you know customers or whatever um so and and that does look like for instance like google has done a really uh good job at staying at the forefront of that um and you know i don't i'm not sure like i don't i can't think of a a company that has like risen up because of just this you know there isn't like a new Facebook on the rise that's like oh this is the like artificial intelligence company you know like Facebook was the social network company or whatever so that may be something that's like a little bit more diffuse and and that seems like maybe some of the big players you know did do a, a good job um sort of maintaining their position with it um but you know it remains I guess it remains to be seen I mean if somebody is maybe able to develop you know, some sort of machine learning based like uh, statistics stuff that is like really, really easy for, you know, the normal person to, to sort of layer into their life. But uh, maybe they would they would sort of take take over. But I, I think it's something that it's like you can plug it into existing architectures, you know, so it's not it's not like um, you know, this decentralized web or I, you know, Internet of Things. I mean, these are like really different infrastructures. Um, you know, I mean, Internet of Things is literally hardware. Uh, it's just like hardware didn't exist and now it does. So, you know, that's not like built on top of or, you know, it's its, its own thing. Um, 
But anyway, so uh, not sure really how to, to wrap that up, but um, it will be interesting to watch. And I, I guess I was thinking a little bit about like this is the first episode of 2019, so why not talk about what uh you know what the future looks like? I you know I don't I don't know that we're going to see any huge you know earth shattering changes in the big big players uh, in tech you know, by the end of the calendar year 2019, but, um, who knows, but that it, it, the, I mean, I, at least as far as stuff I talked about, I know that the, um, you know, this new Oculus product will come out and I think that you will see some, uh, pretty increased sales. <clears throat> I think a $400 price point is something that, uh, $400 for like truly immersive virtual reality, uh, virtual reality that you'll be able to actually move around with it on, on your head and not just like sitting still in a chair or something that actually track your movement. Um, I think it's going to be m much more compelling than anything that has been released uh, previously. And I'm not sure if other, I would assume like other companies have similar kind of products in the works and will probably also be released this year. So uh, I feel like 2018 was was kind of quiet on the virtual reality front, um, but it's possible that you know 2019 could could see a, a nice a nice jump in in like usership and and it might come into the sort of national conversation or the international you know worldwide conversation of technology and and um, entertainment you know a little a little bit more um, and other things I mean. You know what's going to happen with Bitcoin? That I, you know, I think that's really um, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, twenty. You know, uh, let's see. So twenty uh, twenty eighteen was a pretty much unmitigated disaster. Uh, so this January fourteenth. Uh, 2018 Bitcoin was at thirteen thousand six hundred fifty-six dollars, and it's currently selling around three thousand five hundred dollars. Um, and we have seen, you know, it's it's kind of had its ups and downs, but it's you know overall the trend has been way down. And um, in you know October, I mean, just in October, even into November, we were still in the six thousands. And then we had a real big crash, a uh, real big drop in uh, kind of the end of November into December. Now we're down in the three thousands, and um, you know I'm I am not a uh, <clears throat> I am not a uh, a finance person, you know whatsoever. Um, but I know that you know you can't just look at the um, you can't only look at, uh, whoops. you know, at the price, you, you know, you also have to look at, um, huh, what am I looking at here? Uh, you also have to look at, you know, things like volume are, are really important. And then there's, you know, things that I, you know, I don't know much about, but, you know, other like trends that you watch and the way, you know, the way things go. Um, but, you know, I just looking at a chart over, you know, just the last year and it, yeah. So, you know, 
volumes like well, I don't even know what number that is. Five billion, six billion dollars is a twenty-four hour volume. Um, you know, last year it was like in January or whatever, it was like six. I mean, sorry, it was like ten, even eleven. Um and then it, you know, and then then you sort of started to see it drop down and back up, down, up. Uh, and honestly, I would say the volume has actually really dropped. Um, you've seen it go even down into like three, uh, uh, Sorry, I'm sure this is really compelling uh, audio right now. But, you know, you had peaks of, at one point, like the biggest peak in the last year, like just literally 365 days, was almost 20 billion. But that quickly sort of fell off. It was more in like January, February, March, you had it like closer to like 10. And then, you know, then dropping. And then, I mean, but you got as low. I mean, it got it got down to like in the fives. Then you sort of five, six, and then you had another pickup. But then, you know, you had periods this summer where it was down below five, down to three even. Um, you know, and we had some more pickup up and down, up and down, three, four, five, six. Uh, you know, so it, I, it's it's hard to say. I don't I, – I guess we're not at like the – in the last year, uh, I wouldn't. I would say that this isn't the lowest. I'd say it sort of dropped and dropped, and sort of the summer, uh, maybe beginning of the fall, and and it has kind of picked up the end of 2018, been beginning of 2019. And you know, I do think that that you know that matters. I mean, I I think if you have falling prices and just continually falling, um, you know, volume, I. You know, you you know, you could wind up just like never ever recovering, never getting back up. So, uh, but it you know, anyway, um, what what is the f the future of that look like? Uh, Bitcoin, um, <laughs> I have no idea. Um, one of the one of the uh, interesting things that occurred, and I don't know. So they look at like market cap. Um, so right now, uh, I guess the market cap of Bitcoin is sixty-two billion, and um, there's a, a a website called CoinMarketCap.com. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty good um, it's a it's a pretty good uh, site for for this kind of thing that I'm I'm sort of talking about right now. Um, the the main page just lists the top cryptocurrencies i don't know how far it goes like the top 100 i guess are on the um the front page and it just lists them uh i'm sure you can sort them like in different ways that sorts them as overall market cap so it's just simply what is the price per coin and how many coins are there and uh it used to be bitcoin uh number like earlier this year um Bitcoin or you know in 2018 Bitcoin then Ethereum and then Litecoin so that was the you know the top three for long for like a long time I think you know for most of the time currently the top three the, the top is still Bitcoin 
pretty far ahead at 62 billion but number two is now is xrp and i don't remember when that jumped up uh but that's ripple they call it and the ripple is sort of interesting because ripple has some kind of like backing of like financial institutions and stuff um but it is at 13 billion and ethereum is at like 12 billion so it's just behind and number four is bitcoin cash and that's a two billion dollar market cap and that's actually you know what i was talking about before like a like a fork of bitcoin and so that at some point if you go back through its code commit history it is it intersects with bitcoin and it's exactly the same and then at some point it started to diverge and then it became its own separate blockchain and when that happened you actually owners of bitcoin you actually had also bitcoin cash um, so interestingly enough, Bitcoin Cash has like stayed around and it's the fourth largest market cap. Below that is EOS. And um, EOS is, I, I don't know if there's like an official na like name. I, it's just like an acronym without any actual <laughs> meaning. Um, but the, I know people call it Ethereum on steroids or whatever. But uh, it is another one of these... Um, uh, crypto uh, blockchains that you can really build applications and stuff on. So, you know, Ethereum and EOS are like that. I do not know about XRP, um, but uh, Ethereum and EOS. And then um, as you go down, number eight now is Litecoin. And it's pretty It's pretty interesting that, you know, Litecoin is sort of down, uh, down at that at that level, um, you know, falling all the way from like being third. So while Bitcoin itself has lost a lot of, of you know, um, value, uh, you know, in U.S. dollars or whatever over the last year, some coins have fallen even harder. Uh, or actually, I think a lot of these have. Um, but even with relation to each other and, and you know, Litecoin is probably like the big loser uh for 2018 even even worse than um you know than uh bitcoin you know overall uh so yeah i don't know um there's so i actually was you know some i did somewhat of a good move i i pulled all of my my uh bitcoin uh i sold all my bitcoin um i think this summer and so i took some major hits <laughs> over 2018 but i at least sort of avoided that last drop to like 3500 but i have not actually moved my money out of the exchanges so you know to me that that is just because i have not given up on crypto or bitcoin or whatever um but you know i haven't you know i'm sort of waiting to see you know is is there going to be a turnaround um or not. I mean, I, like I said, I really think that these decentralized apps are, uh, I think it's, it's going to happen. Um, but whether or not it's built on any of these blockchains or any blockchain at all, or, you know, what it looks like, I'm not sure. But, you know, I still, I still certainly like the idea of a decentralized currency, um, you know, that has no government control. And, uh, you know, I still, I like gold. I like silver as well. Um, but, you know, that's, <clears throat> that's a little, it, uh, uh, I'm, you know, you, you can't really use it as currency right now. So, um, 
you know, we, I've talked in past episodes about the whole idea of like capital gains and stuff. And certainly that applies to crypto as well. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see how, we'll see how, where, where this goes. But, um, yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess if I had to say like, okay, well, what's it going to look like 2020, January 13th? I, I think that we might see an, in I, I think, I think we might be up. I think we might be up over the next year. So I'm not ready to just totally pull out yet. Um, so that was a very, very long discussion um, over an hour about uh, the, you know, sort of history with Sears and then technology and kind of some of the history of that and where it's going. Um, I did want to talk about some other things, uh, but I'm going to have to go. I'm just going to kind of maybe go pretty quickly through them um i just wanted to at least kind of touch base with everybody about these yellow vest protests i uh, you know they are actually still going on um uh, like i said i have not personally been really reading much on the news uh almost at all i haven't been like paying much attention to cnn or anything um, but, I, you know, I'll start to get back into it now that I've sort of broke the ice here. Um, <clears throat> but I did just, like, want to pull up uh, the uh, Wikipedia article on it. And um, I wanted to see... Uh, so, you know, it just yellow vest movements. That's what it's called. And, you know, it's interesting. So the date, the range they give for it is November 17th, 2018 to ongoing. And you actually, so here's the January 7th, uh, excuse me, January 12th, and they say Act 9. So I guess they're just saying every weekend is like um, Act 1. I don't, I don't know where they got this naming convention. Uh, they actually don't really explain it. Uh well, let's just see if they say it. So, Act 1 was November 17th. The protests began on November 17th and attracted more than 300,000 people across France with protesters striking barricades, blah, blah, blah. In addition to roads, protesters also blocked as many as 10 fuel depots. Um, anyway, you know, we, we sort of talked about stuff before. Um, the 24th was Act 2. So, uh, it looks like they're just saying because it's kind of this thing that just seems to happen on saturday um they're very you know very civilized about this so they go about their uh their weekly work and everything and then they um they uh or just keep calling it act one two three four we're up to uh act nine um, but actually, Act 8, so this uh, January 5th, I believe there, this was like a pretty big, pretty like interesting one. Not necessarily big as far as the size, but uh, Act uh, 8 was, according to French Ministry of the Interior, the first demonstration of 2019 brought 50,000 people into the streets across France. A government ministry building on Rue de Grenal was broken into in Paris. A door to Rene City Hall was damaged. Spokesman Benjamin... Graveau, who was evacuated from the premises through the garden, said riders broke down the door of the building and hijacked a construction vehicle. There were also skirmishes in Bordeaux uh, and a, a few other cities. 
Women were an important part of the movement from the beginning, both in defining its objectives and communicating at roundabouts. In the eighth week, they organized separate demonstrations in Paris, Toulouse, and uh, C-A-E-N. I don't know how to say that. Uh, according to one of the organizers, the goal was to have a channel of communication other than violence. The Interior Minister announced that over 60% of the traffic enforcement characters cameras in the country had been vandalized this was up from estimates of 50 percent in early december so they took out a bunch of traffic cameras 60 percent in the across the country that's outrageous uh so then so that was last weekend and there was fires it was all I've, I've seen some videos of this stuff i mean they're shooting fire hoses at people and stuff and uh but interesting, but the number they say is 50,000. That's down well down from the 300,000 from the first day. Uh, this Saturday, yesterday, attendance increased in the ninth straight weekend of protests with at least 84,000 demonstrating uh, for economic reform. Government officials deployed 80,000 for, uh, security forces vowing zero tolerance for violence. Um Yeah, I, I think that this weekend was about serious incident, but, you know, last weekend was really big. Um, or we, there was apparently, like, a lot, you know, a lot of problems. Uh, yeah, the December 29th one was, like, a little more chill. Um, December 22nd, it looked around 38,000, um, 66,000 on December 15th. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just kind of, yeah, it's just, it's crazy, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, this is nine weeks, this is months, months of protests. And um, the only the only thing I'd say about it, and I, and I don't know if they're going to get any reform, but, you know, the like what's been getting popularized as like the list of reforms are, you know, they are... For the most part, they're not very, um, you know, libertarian. Um, so, you know, that's that's kind of a bummer. But it is, uh, you know, I'm not sure if it's going any. Uh, there are they are saying that there's yellow vest protests. They're listing a whole bunch of other countries that are doing it as well. Um, but yeah, so. Anyway, so the Yellow Vest protest stuff is still going on, and uh, maybe, you know, maybe in the next episode I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, the government shutdown is all, is all anything that's on, like, CNN, and, you know, the, the, you know I, didn't, I didn't really want to talk about it, but there there is um, some talk. Dave Smith talked about it pretty recently, and it was kind of cool, so maybe check that out. I'm not going into any details uh, too, you know, too much about it, but... Um, you know, it's, I mean, you know, they're talking about like, I mean, what's the budget now? Like a $4 trillion budget. And, you know, the, the whole thing, the, the entire discussion is just about the wall, right? The, the $5 billion that, that Donald Trump wants for the wall. So, you know, I mean, you're talking about a, a tiny, tiny sliver of the budget. So they're letting, you know, $5 billion you know, out of, you know, $4,000 billion, 
you know, hold this thing up. And they are, you know, and so obviously like, you know, CNN or any of the mainstream media, like all the blame is on Trump and how he, it's his fault because he won't do this. And, um, I mean, to me, it's just, you know, let's say, I mean, it seems like it's 50, 50, right? Like just as easily the Democrats could say, okay, we will build the wall. And then the government wouldn't be shut down and that 5 billion would be spent, um, you know, on, on the wall. And, uh, and then, you know, we wouldn't have this government shutdown. So to me, it just seems like it's a game of chicken and, you know, neither side is blinked and it's the longest government shutdown, uh, that we've seen, I think in the U S and, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are affected by it. Uh, you know, myself, uh, have been affected, uh, 0%, um, by the government shutdown. And, uh, the only thing I've even heard about it is I had my, uh, uh, my, my mom's stepmother has passed away and they've been going through, you know, her will and dealing with her estate and stuff and one of the, you know, uh, her like belongings, you know, and so an appraiser had to go through like her, her condo or whatever, and they needed some number, I, you know, I don't know what, but something from the IRS. And my mom was telling me today that, like, she's like, we couldn't get it because the government shut down. Like, we're just stuck. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess to, to, in some very small way, uh, that's the first direct, like, or, it, you know, whatever, the family member, anybody that's had anything uh, affect them. Um. But, you know, it's, you know, like they, you know, all these things, it's like, yeah, they say like government is shut down, but, you know, at like, what do they do? They lay like, you know, they're threatening to like not pay the people like food stamps or like welfare or, you know, all these like basic, you know, all the things that like directly hurt the people. But, you know, have you heard that the military doesn't have money? I mean, it seems like they're just rolling on, right? I mean... Like, you never hear anything about that, right? Like, they're still finding a way to, like, drone the shit out of, like, just fucking civilians in the Middle East. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's like, again, I mean, this, this the, the people that are, like, running the show are just so, so shitty. You know what I mean? And they're, and, like, they easily could not do that. And that, actually, I saw an article that, like, the food stamp thing that, like, uh, Trump just like figured out a way to like pay uh the like pay the food stamps out even within the um you know in the shutdown and for some reason they need to be the only stipulation was they need to be paid out early which I'm sure nobody on food stamps is going to mind getting their you know next um distribution earlier than usual uh but you know he's uh so I mean again not like not like to defend Trump though he's like a good guy or anything but I mean you know it seems like the Democrats were just fucking totally fine with you know and and the amount of money is like five billion dollars for the food stamps uh it's like nearly five billion dollars for this month this month of food stamps um you know and it seems like the the Democrats are totally fine with letting the people on food stamps starve this month uh, you know, because they don't want to give in to building this $5 billion wall, um, whatever that, you know, I, I, I don't, anyway, I don't even know what this wall is supposed to like look like or whatever. 
anyway, I mean, the amount of waste that the government does, you know, uh, you know, it just seems like this is, you know, it's obviously like purely political and Trump wants it. So they don't want it. Um, another thing I wanted to, to touch on was a, a woman, Tulsi Gabbard is uh, maybe running for president. And she is, I believe, no, she is, uh, she's Democrat, but she is a congresswoman from Hawaii. That's what I was trying to, I don't know if she was Senate or Congress. So um, I believe I may have mentioned her before, but she is pretty interesting. Um, I'm sure most of her stances are just like normal, you know, kind of like, socialistic kind of leaning type stuff but her uh stuff on the middle east is really interesting so she took a like secret trip to syria and actually met with assad and i i just can't remember if i talked about it this would have been a, many episodes ago like probably like back this summer um but I remember like reading what she did and I and I watched I watched uh like an interview with her and stuff. And basically, you know, she said, you know, when I asked them about the rebels, like she's like literally went to Syria and talking to them. She's like, I'm asking Syrian people, like, you know, well, what about the rebels or whatever? And they're just like, What rebels? And she was just like, There, you know, her conclusion after going there was that there aren't rebels. There are two basic sides to this there's the Assad you know government and the troops that are you know with him and then there's ISIS and that's what's going on um and so it's really fascinating that you know this woman is actually now uh running for president and it seems like she has been one that has had much more like sort of open dialogue and stuff with with uh Trump over the years so um I'm sure, and I think she's a she's Hindu. Um, I think they said she's the first like Hindi uh, person ever in in Congress. Anyway, I'm sure that she won't get elected if she's actually going to change anything. But it is kind of cool, you know. Um, and I mean, and I'm like, I'm okay with that. Like, if there's somebody that like, yes, I don't agree with like most of their, you know, their politics or their economics or whatever, but they're like really staunchly anti-war, which is kind of like how Bernie Sanders came along. Like, I'm, I don't know. I, I, I granted, like, I don't like want them necessarily to, to be elected, but like, to me, like, there's at least like the possibility of thinking about them as the lesser of two evils. Like if they really would, you know, you know, be like that or whatever. Uh, and then the last thing I just, uh, was and I, I'm just going to zip, you know, zip through it. Um, but I was thinking about like, you know, okay, you know, again, like 2018's over, 2019 starting and like, what's the current state of things in the Middle East? Um, are we pulling out of Syria? That I think is like top of mind for me. And uh, there is an article here. Uh, so antiwar.com, this is like 
uh, well, this was January 11th, so this was Friday, but the U.S. military announces the start of Syria pullout. The U.S. military has announced that the process of withdrawing the estimated 2,000 troops in Syria has finally begun. They say there will be no specifics reported on numbers or timelines because of quote-unquote operational security. This follows a week of speculation about the process and comes just a day after Pentagon officials said that there had been no changes to the timeline despite John Bolton's weekend talk of making the pullout quote-unquote conditional. And while the military isn't giving any specifics, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights is. The observatory reported that a convoy of U.S. armored vehicles was the first of the pullout and was seen leaving the town of R-M-E-I-L-A-N into neighboring Iraq. That process of withdrawing from Syria involves driving into Iraq, and the U.S. troops are all on the side of Syria closest to the Iraq border, it once again raises question of why the pullout is expected to take months instead of the few hours such a trip would take. But anyway, you know, all in all, you got to consider that pretty good news. So it looks like maybe, just maybe, we uh, Trump is actually delivering on pulling troops out of Iraq. Um, you know, what else? So, so let's say things are awful in the Middle East, but... You got we gotta we gotta feel like things are a little bit better in Syria right now than they were, you know, at the beginning of 2018. Let's say, uh, with Yemen, um, I don't know if things are like really physically like better there right now, but the fact that you know uh, our Congress uh, it like voted that you know no more support for the war in Yemen, um, you know that's you know that's a good thing. So. You know the Saudis without our our like direct support. Um, you know maybe they will back off. I feel like they still have are well within their abilities to just like mow down the Houthis anyway. But we'll see. Uh, but you know at least there's uh, a glimmer of hope there. Um, certainly better than you know the zero hope of the beginning of 2018 with Iraq. I'm not sure much has changed. Libya, I believe, is still a complete mess. Um, You know, Dave Smith always talks about there is a, you know, open air slave market. I'm really not sure how widespread that is. It'd be something maybe to look into and talk about, you know, find out the best I can about that and talk about it in the next episode. Um, But as far as I know, you know, again, no real change. Egypt, uh, I believe their current situation is they're back to having like a kind of a military dictatorship there. Uh, Things have not gotten any better, uh, I think, in the calendar year of 2018. And uh, Afghanistan is still a total mess. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not sure if there's been any talk about any... uh, de-escalation or pulling out of Afghanistan at all. Um, but certainly nothing has happened. I, you know, I feel like, I feel like there was some talk about it. Yes. So, uh, at the end, right. So December 20th, this is just New York times. The Trump administration has ordered the military to start withdrawing roughly 7,000 troops from Afghanistan in the coming months. 
two defense officials said Thursday, an abrupt shift in the 17-year-old war there, and a decision that stunned Afghan officials who said they had not been briefed on plans. Man, I'm not sure who the Afghan officials are. I mean, from what I understand, the Taliban controls more of Afghanistan now than like almost any other time since we like first invaded. So <laughs> I don't know who the Afghan officials are, but uh, you know, I feel like the Taliban's probably like more powerful than them. Trump, uh, President Trump made the decision to pull out the troops. About half the number of the United States has in Afghanistan now. At the same time, he decided to pull American forces out of Syria. The announcement came hours after Jim Mattis, Secretary of Defense, said he would resign from his position at the end of February after disagreeing with the president over his approach to policy in the Middle East. The whirlwind of troop withdrawals and the resignation of Mr. Mattis leave a murky picture for what is next in the United States' the longest war. And they've come as Afghanistan has been troubled by spasms of violence affecting the capital, Kabul, and other important areas. The United States has also been conducting talks with representatives of the Taliban and what officials have described as discussions that could lead to formal talks to end, to end the conflict. So, all right, well, I kind of forgot about that. But that's gigantic. So let's say uh, Afghanistan, we apparently, you know, again, like we have, so we have verification that we've actually started to withdraw troops from Syria. And we've, that came from a very like same time announcement about pulling out uh, of Afghanistan right then. So, I mean, I feel like there's reason to be pretty optimistic. So, in the calendar year 2018, we have started to pull out of Syria. Congress has voted to not support, you know, that we're no longer allowed to support uh, Saudi Arabia in the war in Yemen. And we have announced that we are going to withdraw at least half of our forces from Afghanistan. And Iraq, Libya, and Egypt are still basically a shitty uh, situation as they were. But I would say... On the Middle East front, uh, from our perspective, the people that are not pro-murder, um, it's a good year, you know? Certainly better than any year under Obama. Any year, uh, since 2001 at least, under George Bush. Um, so it's been a long, you know, long time. And, you know, uh, so again, as you said a million times, on uh, this podcast, I'm certainly not a Trump supporter whatsoever, but just as like the same kind of way of like an analyzing Tulsi uh, Gabbard, you know, this the Hawaiian congresswoman, you know, you got to to me like it, it's it's a mixed, you know, like it doesn't have to be just damn Trump in 100 percent. You know, the, there's also like. This stuff is is huge, you know? I mean, this is like the core of of like, you know, what I talk about. And um, you know, it's been it's you know, sort of surprisingly against all odds and despite like, you know, Trump being like a pretty, you know, despicable person, um I I mean, I guess like I don't know, you know, I don't know the guy. But he looks he certainly looks weird, right? And he says like he talks crazy. Um, but he's managed to like, sort of like get some stuff. It seems like get some stuff, uh, moving in the right direction in the Middle East. Uh, so with that, 
I am going to wrap things up for today. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, if you want to find me around on the internet, the still, the still centralized internet, uh, for now, you can, uh, well, on the centralized internet, you can find me at Patrick J. Bradley on tw- Twitter, and you can just, just search on Facebook, Whistling in the Dark, or Whistling in the Dark podcast or something, and, uh, you know, it will come up, and I really appreciate likes or follows or, you know, anything. You can share, you know, share the podcast around. I mean, the podcast, you know, right now is on, I guess, most of the main, like, you know, Apple Podcasts and Google and uh, Stitcher or whatever. Um, it's also, I think you can find it on TuneIn Radio. And um, and then I uh, I actually host it on Podbean. Um, nope, not Postmates. Podbean. And so, you know, you can uh, find Whistling in the Dark if you, if you just, I don't know, just want to use... Um, just want to use uh, Podbean. Um, I'm not even sure how you find this. Like, where is the... Anyway, just search Whistling in the Dark podcast on Podbean, and it would show up. So you can you could share a link directly to the Podbean page. If you have Podbean, follow me on that. You can comment on it and everything like that. Uh, and then on um, Gab, right? Uh, Gab.ai. Um Gab is a, uh, I guess it's basically centralized, but it is, um, I believe that, you know, at least they don't do like censorship and stuff. So anyway, yeah, actually, oh, I guess you go to patrickbradley.podbean.com. It's kind of weird that it's not whistling in the dark. I don't know why I did, why I did that. Uh, anyway, but what episode 26 will be up there. I mean, when you hear this, cause that's where I, I host it. So any of those places, you know, look out for me. Um, tw- you know, Twitter would probably be the best place if you actually want to like interact with me in some sort of way. Um, but these other places are, you know, they're cool too. So thanks for listening. And I will be back on again soon.